it's it's hard to to pinpoint in some in some ways like where the significance of dialectics lies in Marx because it appears in a lot of different ways and some of them methodological, some of them seeming to have to do with the nature of capital itself, some of them having to do with the nature of history. And one of the things that I find helpful is a lot of this book. A lot of the logic of this book is based on the idea of relations at a number of different levels, right? Relations of production, relations that exist within something that seems simple, for example, like a commodity. It's actually a relationship between use value and exchange value. And he unpacks from out of a lot of... What's the difference between use value and exchange value? Yeah, so that's the in the opening chapter uh, on commodities, Marx starts with this you know seemingly simple starting point right the commodity which surrounds us and seems to be you know he says it's like a, a capitalism appears as if it were just a gigantic uh set of commodities right and so he breaks down this simple element uh, into two uh, constitutive elements of its value right on the one hand you have use value which has to do with its meeting of a certain need or desire right he doesn't distinguish really in any kind of important way between whether that need is an actual like you know necessary subsistence need or some kind of want or desire that's its kind of he describes it as its qualitative element and on the other hand you have its exchange value which has nothing to do at least at first right it seemingly gets more complicated later but at least at first it seems to have nothing to do with its usability right it has to do with its uh, you know the what you can get for it on the market so it has to do with its place in the market and so as soon as, you, as soon as he takes what seems to be a simple unity, right? and here I do think the legacy of Hegel is present, right? and he shows that in actual fact there's a relation in this simple unity. It's not a simple unity. That the unities that we are dealing with, whether it's the unities at a very kind of micro level of the commodity or the unity, uh, the macro level of a mode of production like capitalism, that what appears like a simple unity is actually, in fact, a complicated mediated unity with elements, you know, constitutive elements in it. And in fact, those constitutive elements are quite often contradictory, right? And so simple unities have contradictory elements in them. And yeah, there ends up being a, a contradiction, for example, between use value and exchange value, because the use value of something, what I can use it to meet a certain, the way I can use it to meet a certain need, that value is, is eviscerated the minute I exchange it, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too with commodities, right? As soon as you exchange it, well, you, yeah, you can yeah. no longer use it. Like literally, if you give your cake away, you don't get to eat it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, anyways, yeah, I just think that whenever he uses the word relation, he's never—I don't think—talking about a simple kind of indeterminate relation. I think when the word relation comes up as a concept, as a way, as an explanatory mechanism, I think that is always a good place to pause and say, like, you know, to what extent is this a dialectical relation? Because I think that dialectics is the way that Marx thinks relations. Can I actually ask what might be a dumb question, though, sure. even though it was like, you know, you just say you can't have your cake and eat it, too. But, you know, based on uh, the chapters we, we read in Capital and we read things from his early and middle period as well, which we can you know, jump around to if, if we uh, so choose, is the way that he describes the capitalist who gives money to buy labor power and what the laborer produces, the capitalist gets to also consume in order to get their money back at, at an increase. But... Does the capitalists actually get to have their cake and eat it too? Actually, <laughs> you know, so I'm 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 caught on Lillian's question about why mystification is something specific to the social form of capitalism. Yeah, and even as I think through these things, and you know, Marx provides this wealth of social science to it. There is a coherence to capitalism, but there's also something deeply incoherent about it. Like, 
things that shouldn't be possible are possible in capitalism. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was um, I was thinking about this today that, you know, well, there's a lot of thermodynamics. You can't create something from from nothing. Yet somehow in the system of capitalism, you get to withdraw more than you put in. Like, mm-hmm. how is that possible? Like, I know it's not magic, but. The way he approaches it, he says, it sure kind of looks like magic. Yeah, he's, he used the word magic all the time, yeah. you know, break down into it, there's something spooky about this. I think he has, like, you know, this reflection on, like, the spectrality yeah. uh, of capital. And, you know, I, I wonder if that's, you know, getting us, you know, along the way, at least what I find fascinating or awful about the social realm capitalism is that the, the limits that should bind it don't end up really binding it. You know the the common sense restraints on on activity on on production end up not being restraints but limits it overcomes. So I think that I I waited to bring up the law of value because I think it's one of the most arcane and frustrating things about Marx's scholarship. But I think the only way with Marx that you get the idea of a contradiction is through his understanding of what value is and the and like the reason capitalism mystifies its own social relations unlike other social forms is because it subordinates the various kinds of human value that exists in the world to the value form that capital takes so like it's not a logical contradiction in the sense that it's impossible for these different things to be happening that you're mentioning it's that they they appear to us in one way in this particular form and actually our lived reality like that the real life that we live is another way and so but it, it's not like a yeah it's a i guess it is a dialectical contradiction but i want i want to say why i th- i've i think value is actually important because when you say things like there's use value and surplus value or exchange value. That seems like a set of obvious things to say. Like there's some things I use and other things I exchange, but the attachment of the word value to it creates a sense of like, as Owen was saying, social relativity. We're not talking about a calculation. We're literally talking about human values, the way things value to me, the way things value based on how we think we ought to use them together. Or like value is this, it's in, it's not a tangible good. It's not a quantitative good. It's literally just human value. And I think that when I first read Capital, when I was an undergrad, I didn't understand this. I thought we were talking about calculating shit. I thought it was like you put in a certain quantity and you get out a certain quantity. There's a sense in which you can calculate labor time that way, but you can also talk about capitalism without any theory of value. And in fact, I was trained to think about it thusly. Like you can do all of this without that. You can talk about coercion, surplus appropriation, the relations between direct producers. You can, there's no reason you need the theory of value unless you're interested in simultaneously saying, interested in making a moral and political critique on top of the social theory that you are developing. So like under capitalism, in order for things to be valuable in a universally recognizable way, they have to be exchangeable as commodities and they have to be subordinated to the imperatives of what capital, 
sees as valuable. So we can have all the values we want. We're not determined by economics or economic structures. We can like, you know, not top to bottom. It's not commodities all the way down. You value this. I value this. I have this religion. You have this religion, but everything needs to be made compatible with the value form. And that's, that's the, I think that's the moral critique and why it's contradictory to us. Yeah, so what you're you're describing there is, and yeah, I think you you came up to the border of sort of a disjunction between our lived experience, just spontaneous consciousness, and the sort of systemic reality of what's happening is you know an alienation that's at work constitutively in capitalism. You know that you can have whatever values you want. You know nothing can stop you from making that personal choice, perhaps. But the social form of capitalism is always going to move towards for that value to do work for you. It's going to have to abide by whatever dictates this uh, social system says is valuable. And so you know what you have under capitalism is you know constitutively a system that is designed by people but increasingly separates people from their capacities, from their uh, perhaps independently uh, chosen wants. It creates a stricture of you're choosing, but you don't really get to choose. And the mystification helps cover over that, that kind of fracture, that alienation that Marx Moore talks on his earlier, more middle period, that separation from ourselves. That isn't an accident. It's a, a necessary working at it well like the basic thing with capital right is that it's he describes it as this self-moving substance right value is the self-moving substance and the sort of inherent dynamics of capital and the process of production under capital is to valorize itself the the expansion of value for itself like one of the things you said before was that something like, you know, where are the limits, right? Where are the limits for capitalism? And in certain places, it seems like there aren't any at all. But Marx will also say things like capital is its own limit, right? Like it's its own sort of self-overcoming movement. And what this amounts to in practice, in, in like reality, is this sort of continual and more or less automatic accumulation of capital for itself which takes the form of like an increasingly abstract social power that dominates and nothing thus far <laughs> is uh, yet been able to escape that expansive logic. Right. And so here we can, you know, talk about so-called formal and real subsumption, but the basic point is that, you know, the, the, lim the limit to capital being itself means that it, it will never stop. Like one of the things I'm always trying to emphasize with my students when I talk about Marx is like, you know, we don't need to posit, any greedy capitalists at all. We don't need it, right? That's not part of the analysis. The analysis is what the inherent dynamics and logics of capital accumulation are, right? And this is what I think Marx is best at doing, right? Showing that these things are unavoidable aspects of commodity production for the sake of surplus value generation. And so like maybe we could start thinking then too uh, a little bit about like what kinds of political consequences there are from the analysis here. Like what sort of like what sort of what can we do? Oh my god. Oh, no, <laughs> what are we We're only a half hour in. Why are you doing yeah, that to us? I mean but the way you <laughs> We're not gonna get to it at the end of the episode. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the way you framed that, though, reminded me of uh, what, something we were talking about in that C.L.R. James episode, where C.L.R. James says that, you know, the problem 
problem we face, and he was saying this in the 60s, and of course we think of things like climate change now, but he says the problem is is that capital dictates everything to us. We're not allowed to value anything else. We're not allowed to, we are prohibited from, not of course like legally or through some kind of formal mechanism, but we are concre concretely prohibited from valuing anything other than what the value form under capital dictates like, you know, basically anything, any way other than commodities and commodity exchange. Right. And like so, capitalists as much as yeah, workers. Of course. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so like we, we, wherever your position within that mode of production is globally, we'd love to say that, oh, we're going to value the environment now. We should probably, this is a, we, this is an important thing that we should actually value and do something about. And it's like, well, for as long as you can do, you can say that all you want. Like you said, Will, right? Like you can, you're, you're free at a certain level of yeah. like individual imagination uh, an individual valuing to say that, oh, no, I like I really think that we should I value the environment. I think we should all really value in the environment. Uh, sorry, for as long as this is the economic system that we live under, there is not going to be valuing of anything in any other way. You know what I mean? It's not we can as much, you know, maybe yeah. you can make small strides here and there, but, you know, it's not it's not possible. Yeah, I think here the language of capacity is really important. You know, so maybe people go too far to say something like, you know, and um, maybe this is like early Frankfurt School critical theory where like capitalism even like, you know, gets into your psyche. So that, you know, uh, I think that that's like the false consciousness uh, uh, thesis. But, you know, for Marx, there is not a necessarily a false consciousness problem. Like, sure, we might not grasp capitalism in all of its workings, but you can still have, you know, Marx still creates a, a tiny space as latest capital for the imagination, for, you know, um, subjective desires and all of that. The problem is, that those get subsumed in, into the institutions or um, the social form that you know, will allow you to do anything. And so the you know like sometimes I'll say to my students you know you know because all my students they're all anti-capitalist now there, there's nothing Hell there's yeah. nothing more yeah. uh, widespread in the at least I'll say in philosophy undergraduate academy I don't know what they're doing in the other disciplines than being anti-capitalist. But I will say to you. There is nowhere you can run that capital will not follow. Not because it's like hunting you down, but I bet you need to eat, right? Mm. And you know you need to survive, right? What are you going to do in order to do that? And so if you want to live your values of valuing the environment, well, what is preventing us from having the capacity to realize that value? Well, the problem is that there is one dominant way that value is getting realized, and that was not really chosen by the rest of us. That is, you know, the self-actualization or the, the mechanism process of the social form of capitalism. And so what I thought was really interesting reading Capital, I like that Gil said, you know, it's not about the capitalists being greedy. It's about, you know, given their position, if they are going to survive against other firms that are, are also out there, this is what they will do. And so there's actually this tension. I wonder what you'll think about this, that there is a moral political critique, but Marx and Capital, at least one one reading, he's not giving a moral critique of capitalism. He is giving, you know, an empirical analysis. And, you know, obviously he's expecting a read like, so what do you think about this? But it's not like, you know, we should shame capitalists in order, we should shame capitalists in sharing our values, because at the end of the day, they're obeying pretty much one law. And that's for their own survival. And I don't know many capitalists who are going to abolish themselves to save the environment because <laughs> they'll probably make a type of argument, well, you'll need someone with power like us to do the types of things you want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's also another 
odd tension in the text. And this is another thing that I constantly try to emphasize when I teach this stuff to my students that like, you know, when, when he talks about the tendencies through basically like, you know, the laws of competition for, like you said, capitalists got to compete with each other. So they're bound by these processes of accumulation and exploitation as much as anyone else. So one of the things that happens is uh, in order to be competitive, you, uh, you want your rate of surplus value or exploitation to be as high as possible because that's going to allow you to uh, sell your commodities more cheaply than your competitors. Uh, and if you figure out you know, ways of rationally improving the production process by increasing the productivity of labor through the development and implementation of new technologies or like you know, intensifying the division of labor, you're going to do that. And then everyone else is going to do that too as they try to catch up with you. The, the, the moment that I wanted to emphasize about that is Marx will say things like, that is objectively speaking a more rational and scientific way of organizing production than there was previously both in terms of the literal implementation of like you know scientific knowledge and technology but also in that you know centralization of production processes is just more efficient productive and makes better sense than having you know disparate firms competing with each other to produce the same products and so like there's this odd tension uh, this sort of way in which I often think I'm reading Marx and he's like looking at capitalism and being like, wow, this is kind of incredible. Like, this is amazing. Like, think about the previous mm -hmm. forms of social organization. And it's just like, what? Like, there's that famous line from the manifesto where it's like, previous social forms could never have imagined, could never have imagined the level of productivity, the value generated by social labor as capitalism's just unlocked in like a couple of decades, right? And so one of the contradictions here, if it's a real contradiction or not, I don't know, is that we then get, you know, scarcity amidst abundance, hunger amidst plenty, right? Like all of our problems are now materially solvable, I think, due to the development of productive forces that capitalism itself just inherently rationalizes and systematizes. And yet, right, just due to the logics of accumulation, what we see on the other side is not the satisfaction of human needs and desires, but a relative surplus population, increasing immiseration for more people and more people on an ever-expanding scale. I think that's why, to, to, to my mind, like accumulation is the name of, it's like the, the heart of the problem. Right? I think that's the thing that really, and it's a contradictory issue precisely because it's the source it's the source of the solution for all of these problems and the reason why they never get solved and continue to expand or are continually engendered. Right? It's, a, it's a contradictory reality. Hey there, thanks so much for listening. This is just a small sample of the full episode. To listen to it and to access other premium content we're putting out, please subscribe to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash philosophy. See you next time.